recorded this episode live in our Cosmic Tape Music Club Facebook group, so you may hear us referring to some comments that are coming through and reacting to them. We felt that this enhanced the episode, so we kept some of that in. And we also recorded this during some, you know, pandemic times, so you may hear us saying things like stay safe and healthy, which still applies today. Enjoy the episode. So hello, hello. Hope everyone's feeling strong and healthy and safe and calm, dealing with all the stress right now and confusion and chaos. But what's new, really? And even if you're not, maybe this can provide some distraction. Yeah, it helps us. We're kind of uh, in a tunnel today of the world of Stockhausen. So. And what a vast, mm-hmm. lengthy, um, amphetamine-infused world it was. Why do you say that? And it just seems like he had to... Oh, because he worked so hard and so much. I did say he uh, described his schedule as... And this is later in life, so I don't know if this is always how it was, because I know he was traveling quite a bit in his younger years. But at one point he said his schedule was from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., he would work on music, and then from he was older, three, I think, when he said that. Yes, but this probably was just his schedule always, because he described you know most of his life this mm. way. From three p.m. to seven p.m., he would work on music, and then from eight to ten p.m., he would work on music. So three and four is seven. Eight, that's nine hours a day working on music. And, you know, not too much detail there in what he's actually doing. But at one point he did say when he was really only working in his electronic music studio, he would spend most of the day, you know, working on the music. And then at night he would work on the pre-compositions. So basically sketching out what he was going to work on um, the next day. Because that's a lot of, you know, it's a little more technical. It's not really just composition and having, you know, people come in and play the parts. He's having to, you know do the setup of what is even going to be recorded and then... One of the common themes I've noticed with early electronic music specifically is that um, people tend to have a blueprint for what they want to design. Yes. You know, because of it was such a painstaking uh, process back then, you know, when you're dealing with tape machines and, um, you know, more primitive sound sources... Um, I think you really had to kind of map out an idea of the sound you wanted to create, you know, for your next session in order to be productive. If you were going to be productive, yeah, especially if you were working on something that was commissioned or something that had a deadline in terms of like you were going to do a performance somewhere of this piece. Um, You definitely had to be very strict. Um, He had the benefit of working out of the West German radio electronic music studio it was the west german radio that he worked at but then they built an electronic music studio um and he was the head of that he was the director of the west german radio or electronic music studio within the radio station in cologne um, in cologne similar to the bbc um and also the uh paris studios of pierre schaefer very very similar to pierre schaefer Um, He even said um, that he went to Paris for a while and he uh, spent some time there in the Music Concrete studio. And when he came back to Germany, he decided he was not going to make anything electroacoustically. He was only going to make synthesized sound. Was he at GRM? Yes. So he spent time there. He learned their techniques. He learned, you know, what was going on. I think he pretty much went everywhere in the world that there was an electronic music studio. And um, he decided he was only going to make music from sound that he synthesized. So that was from tone generators, from his test equipment, from things he built, um, from taking, you know, things he built, recording those sounds and manipulating them. So not necessarily... This was an era that he went through, right? Like No, not- he says that's pretty much it, like, from that point on. This is from, I think, I want to say 1953. Oh, wow. So yeah. what are the... Like, for instance, in his piece, uh, Contact, mm-hmm. like what sounds like That's a piano? That's probably, uh, so there's a couple versions of Contact um, in the little research that I've done. We're not experts, we're just here to have a conversation. 
about uh, Stockhausen because, you know, you can get pretty academic about things. Um, you can look at him from just the standpoint of being a composer and analyzing his compositions, or you can look at it from, you know, his experimental side and his innovations. Um, there's a lot of points of entry here, but Contact uh, has multiple versions. There's a version that is just the electronic sounds. There's a version that's the electronic sounds and composition. And then there's a third version, and I'll have to look it up, but it has something else going on as well. Hmm. So uh, he, we learned, uh, did a premiere of Contact. This is probably his most famous work. He did that from 1958 to 1960, he created that. And then he toured it. He premiered it in San Francisco. He lived there, though, right? Yeah, like, he was living in San Francisco. And I don't know exactly, you know, the time period, how long he was Sausalito, there. Sausalito, I believe. Yeah, he was there in 1967 to premiere Contact um, in San Francisco. Which is and north, like North Bay, yeah, north of the a very city. beautiful place to be. Uh, mm. That would be well after Bibi and Louis Barron were living there. But, you know, San Francisco in 1967, I can only imagine what he was getting into and the kinds of people he was interacting with, if at all. Um, so that's a pretty interesting I wonder if he met George Harrison there or something. like. Yeah, I mean, he definitely spent a lot of time in London, too. Mm. So that's where he got connected with the Beatles. I mean, he did lectures. They were connected to him. I don't know that he really... Gave a hoot Care about them very right. much. Um, but he did say that he went and visited the EMS Blue studios. So he met Peter Zinoviev, and Peter Zinoviev sold him a system. So he brought an EMS 100 series to, oh, he had a hundred series. to the studio because one of his duties, he said, as uh, the director of the West German radio station, or West German radio electronic music studio, uh, was to decide what equipment they would use and then kind of working with all the engineers on what the equipment did and how to use so it. So he was like the equipment buyer. So he brought in the EMS system. Okay. You know, Analog Solutions out of the UK is actually reissuing uh, something inspired by Whoa. the System 100 Delaware, you know, system. It's not exact, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll chalk a link up there. Yeah. It's insane. So it's like a huge, you know, like desk system you know just as big you know as you would expect from something like that but it's so the, know, the, but it's modern the 100 system is massive right yeah it's the big one that you see in a lot of the radiophonic workshop videos mm, um, it's called gotcha. the delaware so. um, and it was capable of doing quite complex uh electronic compositional stuff like you know big sequencer I think a couple sequencers so I'm going to start throwing some links in several oscillators check in tons on that. of modulation just a really massive <laughs> beast it was, I think it was kind of like EMS's like way of being like alright this is all you could possibly ever need <laughs> yeah and they were really at the forefront of mm -hmm. getting the synthesizers into the radios and electronic music studios that were around Europe. Europe, um, yeah, I was, I was gonna say, it was the key word is Europe. Like mm -hmm. they, were, they were key in Europe in terms of... Um, I'm trying to find a good like resource on the 100, so just so people can see it. Can see um, so I'm looking for about. that right now. Yeah, that should be pretty easy <laughs> to find. So System 100. Being fully restored, I'm gonna click on this link. So Massive. I'm just trying to grab a, a link about uh, the EMS 100 system that Stockhausen brought to the West German Electronic Music Studio. Um, here's a good one. This is just about one that's being restored. Um, but again, these were you know just at the big radio stations that had the electronic music studios in the 60s, um, as well as universities. So same kind of theme here. So I'd say you know what we've learned so far about Stockhausen really runs in parallel with what we learned about Pierre Schaefer in the Paris Electronic Music Studio. Um, and, you know, something that he even said in an interview that I was watching is that he is simply a product of his time. You know, he wouldn't be who he was, inventing what he was doing, making the music he was doing, if he hadn't been born in the exact place and time that he was. And he's simply well, a product of it. Well, at least he admits it. it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's something we've actually talked about a lot. Um, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, this group, this club is about uh, early electronic music 
in you know the 50s to the 70s. So if you were making music in the 50s to 70s with electronic music and you were on the cutting edge of this using magnetic tape and doing music concrete and things like that, you had to be born at a certain time. So um, it was interesting to hear him say that because we've said that so much with all the people that we've covered, that that's just what it is, you know? If you're born now, you're not gonna be on the cutting edge of early electronic music. Or if you were born in Beethoven's time, you're gonna be, you know, innovating in that realm. But there is definitely a through line with um, anyone who was innovating in an avant-garde way with music. Kind of had a similar philosophy about, you know, kind of breaking the norms of the time. And Stockhausen was definitely in that worldview. Mm -hmm. um, I've been really absorbing a lot of information, so I'm sorry if I'm babbling a lot because I just like soaked it all in and now I'm ready to like release it all on you. <laughs> Spearing it. Um, you will. Yeah, and one of the things that really caught my eye about his experience um, is that he was involved with the um, Expo 70 um, called the Space Music Expo 70. So it's very much uh, in line with this group. Um, it took place in uh, Germany. Uh, what city was it? Do you know? I don't have that one memorized. The World's Fair, right? Is what they, they yeah, call it, Yeah, it was in West or Germany. Or is that something different than the World's Fair? West Germany, it says. World's Fair in Osaka. Osaka. Okay, so he went to Japan. He went everywhere. He really got... Ah, it was the German Pavilion. Okay, gotcha. At the Space Music Expo 70 in Osaka, Japan. So that was confusing. Sorry. Sorry for the... So he went, he went there to perform something similar to uh, Pierre Schaefer. He performed at one of those expos and everybody was really mad the audiences were not happy well they were well i feel like you know <laughs> there's not an audience for this at its time when experimental it's music <laughs> yeah it's interesting because i was listening to a, a suzanne chiani interview today and she was talking about how you know one of the things she's trying to do is um exemplify how uh electronic music um was done back then you know, in the 70s, mm. you know, her era. I'm curious what that means to her. Um, well, in terms of, like, the interface and, you know, like, getting, you know, she said she used to have, like, a big, like, 50-something panel system, you know, like, a really big system, and, you know, there was something to the fact that she was able to, you know, interface, um, you know, directly with the instrument in a very, like, human um, mm. sort of way, you know, and, and that... You know, now with the advent of the computer, it's become, you know, so simple and, you know, people have kind of, she, she sees a lot of folks like just hit play on the space bar. Um, and so she's very adamant about exploring, you know, the, the human element uh, as it applies to electronic music. And um, I think that's uh, one of the things that I found interesting about Stockhausen is he was kind of quite the opposite, right? Like mm. he spent, you said he uh, spent a lot of time in the compositional stage. Get the pre-compositional pre, stage. Right, right. So pre he did everything very mathematically. Uh, he created languages. So he like studied linguistics and things like this. And he was originally going to be a, a novelist. He wanted to be a writer. And apparently he wrote a letter to a famous novelist of the, at the time in the 50s. Um, early 50s, uh, maybe even late 40s, when he was like trying to figure out what he should do with his life. And the, this author actually wrote him back, I'll have to look up who exactly that is, um, and said, you know, you should do what is exactly uniquely you. Like only pursue exactly what is unique about you. Don't do anything that anybody else has done before. So I think that kind of fuels him for the rest of his life to be so focused on being in his own head, in his own ideas, and just pursuing them to the fullest extent and not letting anything get in his way. It makes a lot of sense. And not really caring I mean, what anyone thought about it. Nothing else really matters. I kind of wish someone had said that to me when I was 18. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know it now. I know it now. It's never too late to learn. Knowing is half the battle. To follow your heart. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but he was also, some, so, you know, not to like, 
we try not to be too like linear biographical because you know we can all read Wikipedia. But um, I got really excited learning about how cosmic Stockhausen was, how much he referred to things as being cosmic. Oh, about how he was educated on the star Sirius. <laughs> he yeah, I think it's a planet. Or he planet. called it a planet Sirius. It was a star. Though. So I thought it was a star, but I heard him yeah. say planet too. But anyway. Planet, Sirius. star. One know. of his compositions, one of the works he did was called Sirius as well. Um, but he was basically saying that he's not from this world and that cosmic forces are really important and that music is like a cosmic tone that we're like interpreting and experiencing. And one of his last works. I agree with a lot of that though. I mean, we call this the Cosmic Tape Music Club for a reason. Um, it's just vibration. Yeah, one of his it's up last to our ears compositions, to how we perceive it, was called Cosmic Cosmic Pulses. So In I'm going to grab. I guess the, there's a little. Uh, there's an entire Wikipedia page just about Cosmic Pulses. His uh, work from 2007. Um, so if we, I mean, cause like I said, he's did over 300 compositions and a lot of work traveled. That's what I meant by amphetamine. And there's so much to dive into, but if we just focus on the cosmic stuff, we could probably do a whole hour on just that. Um, so he was a weirdo. I feel and like I really him like that and Sun Ra came from the same planet. He did a, <laughs> an opera that's five hours long that mm. looks very much like a Sun Ra production. Right, And right. I was not expecting that. When I started uh, doing the research for this conversation about Stockhausen, I was expecting to read a lot of really dry stuff about his mathematical approach to composition. Serialism. And, you know, serialism and pointillism and how he his notation systems that he developed um, but I did not expect to find a cosmic opera in the mix. So that was really, really awesome. Yeah, I didn't realize how that made me really happy. space happy he was. I guess, again, like there's a reason why- Cosmic era. We said, you know, this group space is really about era. the electronic music in the space age and how much those things are inextricable. You cannot separate the people from the time. I get what you're saying technology. about the time frame playing you such can't. a huge It was so important role. at the time. It was mm -hmm. all anybody was talking about. It informed everyone, I think, at a very subconscious level, even in every art form. Yeah. And you so we can get technical or we can get cosmic, you know? And we lean to the cosmic. It's interesting <laughs> to me that once the space race in that space age era happened, like, you can't take that back. Like, that's there may be like another generation that happens like you know I don't know if we'll ever you know get into uh, you know like commercial um, inhabitate you know inhabiting of like oh yeah I don't think we'll live long enough to see people living other on Mars. planets and yeah. things like that so yeah there's this chance that maybe there'll be like another space age um, you know in that regard but you know there's never yeah, going we'll never we'll never stop being in like a space obsessed society there right? will never be another time when that was all anyone was really mm. thinking about you know kind of like you know this pandemic right now and you know that has really informed you know we'll never not be the, this is an era the you know people who we're in because, another we're yeah. in an interesting you know era right now um but there was a time when the space race and the space age that was the definitive yeah. aspect of the I era. guess we're like the internet age. Yeah. Right? Well, right. And we're obsessed. We're literally like live streaming, talking to people about the space age right now. Communicating through. <laughs> this is one definitely Stockhausen. We've been sitting on him for a while because <laughs> there's so much to It's cover. a big one. And honestly, it's we're still, we still didn't feel ready on it, you know, because it's so vast with him. Um, he just, you know, he got really, um, I mean, I think even, you know, one of the, most of the articles about him mentioned that he became extremely prolific very fast in that sphere. Yeah, like he, he was quickly became with like leaving his mark, known as you know yeah. one of the uh, pioneering you know comp. Uh, comp he rose above the noise of everybody else that was of, doing this. The time. He became a myth. Even you could say um, he talks about this idea within his own lifetime that we keep people alive. Like he references Beethoven a lot, 
Um, we keep the myth of Beethoven alive by continuing to play his music and talk about him and share, you know, in the collective consciousness mm-hmm. what he was. Um, when he really only lived for a very brief time, a long time ago, and made only a very specific kind of music, but he's this myth now. And so I think Stockhausen saw himself in a similar way. Um, yes, okay. Are you so talking about let me read spatialization? Comment. Yeah, this comment is not coming up all the way on our screen, so I'm going to look at it in the group here. So, seem to recall Stockhausen was also a pioneer about concepts in the distribution of the sources of sound in the performing of his work, quadraphonic sound and later octophonic sound. Right. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Your translations are right. Um, he built these systems. I'm going to get this wrong. Quag, quadraphonic... What does the E and the G stand for? Um, And the octophonic systems, you are correct. He was very, very interested in not just sound, but sound in space. Sound in space. Sound within the environment. Not the kind of space we were just talking about, but environmental space. Which I would say, I would rate that high in terms of, you know, the being... um, you know, that's I, probably one of his main contributions. One of his main yeah. contributions, but I would say that that is one of the hottest topics in audio right now. Right now, mm-hmm. yeah. Like uh, for instance, like ambisonic um, technologies. Um, uh, I was recently at like a a career expo for audio uh, professionals um, when I was in New York uh, last year. And uh, one of the, I would say, most prolific topics that was that was being discussed at this thing was the um, idea of sound as it relates to uh, virtual reality. Um, Oh, because there's so much like gaming and virtual reality stuff going on. Right. That the sound that you experience with that is going to have to be developed as well. I I was talking to a a fellow earlier today about how that's something that I'm actually researching for our project. Like something that I think I would like to see us embrace is, um, you know, the idea of capturing sound using multiple speakers creating sort of this like immersive audio experience now that a lot of the devices uh support you know that that natively you know for instance like you know pretty much any level of iphone i think now has uh virtual reality cap- uh, capabilities built in hmm. um you know surround systems are a lot more popular um especially with people that you know that have pretty intense uh, video gaming rigs, um, you know, are, are now set up for um, virtual reality. Um, <laughs> I still remember like the late '80s, early '90s uh, version that you know came out initially. That was like the movie Lawnmower Man. <laughs> oh man, you've lost me. Was oh you never saw that? No, it might have been a little vir- bit before your time. There was virtual reality experiences happening in the late '80s. Yeah, yeah, what? that that was when I first found out about it, and it was like all really basic. Um, I don't know if anybody else remembers that, um, Oof, but it was. You're really out on your own on this one. You really got to pull this one out of the the archives. Well, it was just really basic. That was all I was gonna say. It was, okay. It was super basic, and it was what very short lived. <laughs> it was like one of these things where, like, I remember, like, all of a sudden on the news, there was like a puff piece about like virtual reality and it had like somebody in the oh, goggles so you would wear something and it okay. was all like super you know 90s looking i guess at the time you know it was like basically like the virtual reality version of the power glove oh <laughs> okay yeah that makes sense it was basically like playing virtual reality duck hunt and there it is i found the we quick. were they were sort of you know alluding to the idea that it was going to be you know this the next big uh, technology um, and now I feel like that that is true you know it is kind of like one of the most interesting it is the focus right now we've been working on it for decades you're right new focuses in entertainment yeah. and especially in times like now where you know everybody's spending a lot more time at home um, you know I think <laughs> I could see it exploding you know at this point I'm sharing some of the links here. Uh, Contact in full on YouTube, which is one of his most famous works. Uh, Like we said, there's three different versions. Um, Sorry to bring us back to Stockhausen here. 
Uh, <laughs> sorry. You mean specialization oh, okay. in the immersive so, sound we were talking yeah, about? Yeah, so the first version of Contact was just for electronic sounds, the second was electronic piano and percussion, and the third had a theatrical work as well. So I'm putting that in there. I'm just doing a little housekeeping, throwing some links in. Um, but what I found about his uh, spatialization stuff is that the um, Octophony, which is uh, one of his works from 1991, he worked on this opera for 30 years, I want to say. Um, wow, that's a long yeah. time to focus he your worked, energy on one piece. He worked on this thing for 30 years. But um, Octophony is one of the components of Act Two from his opera. And it is, uh, yes, all about the spatialization. So I found out the Wikipedia just for that. Again, there is so much information on sarcasm, which is a blessing and a curse because it's a lot to go through. It's and a lot to sift through. What to talk about, but it also is a blessing because it's so much for us to discuss, which I actually also heard him say in an interview that he was like, I did enough work. You guys can spend the rest of eternity like analyzing it. I did it all. I'm not going to analyze it. Right He's now. very confident. You guys man. talk about it. You <laughs> talk about me. Keep my myth alive. Analyze what I did. There's enough there to keep you busy for a lifetime, and which here is true. We are. So uh, to build off of what um, Jose was saying, um, the the queg was something that he developed. Uh, which was a quadru quadraphonic effect generator, a device manufactured by EMS in the early 1970s. Oh, really? It was developed by Stockhausen in collaboration with Zinoviev, and he, despite having only four outputs, the Quig could still be used to produce an octaphonic output by manually switching to four outputs, not only between the square on the floor and the one on the ceiling, but between all six squares forming the size of the cube. Um, and then they used a bunch of synthesizers and stuff. There's a whole list of the gear, which if you're into the gear, this is pretty cool. I know it's just Wikipedia, but it's like in depth on this one piece of music that he made. So I'll put that. Very cool. I love it when you nerd out on gear. <laughs> I love it too. Um, I think it's cool that, like we said, there's so many sides to Stockhausen. You can talk about him as the man, the myth, the legend, the superstar who was on the cover of Sergeant Peppers, we can talk about He was on him. the cover of Sergeant Peppers. Let's just <laughs> yeah. take a second. Who knew that? I didn't you know, know that actually. I didn't either. Um, like I knew, I knew the Beatles that he had, were into him right, or anything, but yeah, I didn't know I his face was one of the faces on crossover, there. But I did not know that he was literally, I mean, that's going to send you into another oblivion. Yeah, if you start looking into that. In terms of, no, I'm talking as like, his, in terms of, in oh, terms of his, his ego. ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he was on that cover. You can't ever take that away from him, you know? Like he was on, you know, the, one of the best-selling records of all time. Uh, yeah. He was on the cover. And one of the most, like, groundbreaking. One of the most groundbreaking. He's yeah. like the father of bringing experimental composition into the mainstream, into pop music. Right. And, and no so one many could people deny him that based off of the fact that his head was you know, featured on the cover of Sgt. Yeah. Peppers. Which I don't think he, he sort of knew about these things, but he didn't really care. He thought they were too repetitive and nobody was doing anything interesting. And he would refer, he would like send them back letters that were like, you should listen to these pieces of mine and uh, get a little more interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, he was trying to tell George Martin how to do his job, I'm sure. But more recently, uh, Bjork also talks about how he was a big influence for her because she studied music at a very young age and she got really bored. Can you imagine Bjork being bored by listening to Bach and Beethoven and like begging her teachers to give her something more interesting? And so they gave her Stockhausen and she ended up doing an interview with him. Um, what year is this? I'm not sure exactly what year this is, but I found a transcript of the interview that Bjork did with Stockhausen I didn't find any audio, just this, it's not very long either. It's very easy to read. You don't know what year it's from? I don't know what year it's from. It doesn't say. It's all good, but that's really cool. I didn't but realize you found so that. But it's so cool. Yeah, I found this. I'm going to have to so, read that. So I'll be posting. So what I like to do is put all the links here in the conversation as we're talking about it. But um, later throughout the week, we're going to be posting, you know, I might do like a big post just on the Bjork interview and we can all talk about it you know, what we know about Bjork being into Stockhausen or how, you know, areas where we see her music influenced by him and sharing posts about that and videos and stuff. 
Um, or I might, you know, die. I'm going to have to do a post about this cosmic opera because I just need you guys to take like a few minutes out of your day and watch She's this really weirdness. Into cosmic opera. It is, I think probably because of my theater background and also my love of early electronic music and theatricalism and Sun Ra. And I just felt like that was like everything I love wrapped up in one. And I also wasn't expecting to find that. I didn't know he did it. So it kind of blew me away and I'm going to be obsessed with that now for it's a very while. Cool. So, um, so like I said, we're, we're kicking off the week with this conversation to talk about Stockhausen, but then throughout the week, we'll be posting prompts to get you more into the nitty gritty specifics that excited us. And we also want you to share anything that you find or that you already know. There's a couple people in the group that have already brought him up a few times. So I have a feeling there's some, you know, Stockhausen experts in the group and we'd love to hear from you. Um, to help us sort of like be our mentors as well to the group this week um, as we talk more about him. Because we could do like a whole month on Stockhausen. That would be very easy to do. There's For just sure. so, much, there's so much to cover. Um, you know, and, and the ways that it crosses over with like, okay, he was in San Francisco in the 60s. He went to, you know, Pierre Schaefer's studio and learned from him. And like he spent time with Zinoviev and they developed, you know, the Quag and all these things, and you know who else was he talking? He was sort of a, all the threads and how they all connect. Gump it's very cosmic. experimental sound. Not everyone can be Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they all. I have feel like that reference is like not well received anymore. Anyway, it like what did he get influenced by when he was in Japan? Positive, you know, it's I have like, so many. I hate questions. that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not great. Um, For good reason, but. So we want to know what you know about him. We're going to be, you know, posting what excites us um, and what we learn. And we'll see how deep you can get it and then how many threads we can tie together from what we've learned about the other people we've been talking about. Um, so... What? I just have so... I have so much I'm writing down and, and links I'm grabbing right now. So, in your opinion... Um, what is your, like, what's the best era of Stockhausen compositions? Oh, that's too hard to say. He made 300 compositions from 1951 until 2007. I know. What's your favorite era? Um, I mean, look, I really dig his, like, 70s lecture era. He's got the long hair. He's very confident. He's done the contact already. So he's kind of established himself. He's speaking from this place of... That he's like, all right, I've done this. I've established myself as a leader in this realm. The Beatles love me. This. I'm a rock star. Like, I really vibe with that. But I also really love... He did a lot of interviews in his later life, like right before he died almost. And a lot of things that... Um, that he was still working on until he died. That I felt like he was a little more able to talk freely about his work and his life and what he thought his legacy was and he was a little cheeky and I found him really entertaining but I mean you can't really talk about him without bringing up the helicopter quartet so yeah no that's that is amazing actually I really enjoyed that little anecdote uh, so he wrote this uh, quartet so he was always pushing boundaries in terms of you know, the kind of how he was making music, right? Like there's all these um, theories and ways and languages that he developed that we could go into. If people in the group know more about that, please pick up that baton. Um, but also like space, you know, the quadraphonic systems, the octophonic systems, the, the where the speakers were placed in the room, um, how sound was coming at the audience, but then also the spaces. He did um, a bunch of work that was you'd walk through this whole, I think it was like the Beethoven Hall or something where there was a bunch of different rooms and each room had different people playing different instruments, doing different things, but it was all part of the same composition. So as you walked through different concert oh, halls. Oral experience changed. <laughs> yeah, but what was so funny is that apparently the musicians hated it so much that they revolted and, and just played whatever the, they wanted. And they didn't actually play his piece, and it was like a total failure. But I thought that was amazing that he drove them mad, and they couldn't handle it. And so they ended up just in the moment on the day of the performance, just playing whatever they wanted. 
Right. Oh. <laughs> I can't imagine as the audience member because you don't know what you're expecting. I have half think, a mind okay. though, considering what I've read about him and that you know he was really into this sort of like planned randomness. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe the, he did that on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe that was a compositional technique. Mm. Uh, you know, where like he drive act- them mad to get them to improvise. <laughs> Like, he knew that they, you know, he created some. He was like, what if I, you know, compose something so ridiculous and I'm such, you know, a jerk about <laughs> in demanding. He, he couldn't help but be demanding and you know, intense. How, like, like, I know, you know, he, he would say things like, you know, in the interviews that we've seen, you know, at least the video stuff, you know, like somebody would play something a certain way and he'd be like, I really like what you did there. You know, that's not and it would the make piece you feel at all. Like, I felt like if I was that person, I would, I would be like, die, I can die right? now. Yeah. But when he called you out, you would want to like shrink into But it was kind of like his way of being like, it, you know, he was calling you out, but saying it. And, oh, like, right. Like you did something that wasn't in the sheet music. <laughs> that wasn't what I conducted, but I'm okay with it. It was just it. his way of bringing it up. It was like, you know, instead of just being like a total jerk about it, which I'm sure he had the capability of doing. Yeah, I heard he was like too hard to work with people thought he was mad yeah and all that stuff but like you know i just thought that was like a a cool way to do it it's like what would make you feel worse um you know just having to live with the fact that he knows that you added something to the piece you know and didn't say anything about it or 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 would you rather be yelled at i think i'd rather just be like blasted on the spot you know i would want some kind of feedback i would rather have i I would rather be blasted than have like this passive aggressive like hey i really like what you added to the piece there yeah make me that's the kind of stuff that would that's the kind of stuff that would make me like not be able to sleep at night you know like be worrying what they really thought (laughs) exactly like i'm like he couldn't have felt that way you know about me improvising you know no composer enjoys when you add stuff to their piece that they you know slaved over oh here's an interview from when he was older that was really good it's not too long um that's a video and i just have so much cool stuff that i found that i'm not sure where to drop it in but like i said i'll be posting it more throughout the week i loved that later interview that we saw where um a guy was interviewing him and his first question was like you see i mean this is what he gets for asking this question right off the bat but he was like what is the most interesting this is kind of why i did this to you <laughs> what is the most interesting sound that you've ever heard oh, have I you have picked up on that or something like that and he was like no <laughs> <laughs> he's like no i can't tell you i can't answer he's that he's like could you yeah he was like could you could you tell us the most interesting sound you've you've ever, you know, heard or imagined. And he was like, no. <laughs> and that was all you were going to get out of him. Let's see. We can talk a little bit about, you know, his upbringing and, you know, a little biographical stuff. Oh, right. Um, so he uh, was, start off he was on a great foot. born in Germany. I'm going to grab the Wikipedia just so I can get the dates right. Um, but he was born in Germany and his father was in the uh, Nazi party. And his mother was mentally ill. So when he was young, his mother was sent to a mental hospital. And when the Nazis took power, um, they did not think that mentally ill people were deserving of life. And she was sent to the gas chamber. Though he was not made aware of this, um, he was told that you know everyone at the hospital got some kind of disease and they all died. But later, he did know. Um, his father also went off to the Russian front of the war and was never heard from again. He was considered um, missing in action and then presumed dead. Uh, so he lost both of his parents at a young age, but his, his father did remarry what I thought I heard his, his housekeeper became his stepmother. Um, and so he was, um, you know, like many of the people we've discussed from this time, uh, very affected and traumatized by growing up in wartime and from what he experienced in his childhood. And, um, you know, a lot of people say he carried this through his life and never really got over it. And it made him the very strict, uh, black and white thinking kind of person that he was. 
Though he was very creative and weird and cosmic and thought he was from another planet, his uh, work ethic and Horse his star. drive, um, you know, was very, you know, black and white, very strict, um, very rigid. Um, you know, he was also raised, you know, with religion in a very intense way that he carried with him. Oh, right. It was said yeah. that he thought he was like a god. Like yeah, he, he had some issues with... Very black and white. Taking that religion uh, mixed with his trauma and his upbringing. Um, well, we didn't talk about intensely. Leashed yet. Well, that was actually the Octophony was part of Leashed, yeah. But who were the three characters involved with that? Satan. That was mm. the last one. That was the big reveal. But like. Oh, I'm getting confused now because there's the work where um, there's an angel character. It's like... Uh, the angel Michael, but it's actually angel him. Michael. It's right. his own story his own played story. out through like religious archetypes, yeah. um, where you can see like his father and his mother and his life and everything that gets played out. Um, and I believe in the performance of that, his son, who's a trumpeter, actually played him, this angel character. Mm. I mean, I, we're gonna have to deep dive into that because that's a whole day's worth of conversation to have. Mm. Um, but yeah, so he had. Um, a pretty, uh, you know, hard time with, you know, losing his parents at a young age. And um, he began, I'd say the most influential character in his life is Olivier Messiaen, who he studied with in Paris. And like we said, he studied composition. Um, was that who he was studying with when he met Pierre Schaefer? Must have been, oh, yeah. No, okay. Because... Um, there was also, yeah, a lot of the characters that were in Paris at the time that he was interacting with. Um, but he had a very traditional, uh, you know, musical training, because um, what else was there at the time? Um, but he did go to university and did study composition and, and linguistics and... I think that's an interesting pairing. Yeah. Linguistics. Well, he wanted to be a writer, so... So that's in the mix too. And music, but that's that's a pretty rare one. You know, you hear a lot of ma a, mathematics yeah. and mm -hmm. music. You yeah. know, and it's been said that they go hand in hand. And but uh, you know, the, the linguistics aspect is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he, he started he studied music mostly. You know, like a lot of the other people we've talked about, he did go to school and then university for music. Um, and had, you know, mentors and teachers that uh, guided him to his more experimental ventures. And then he took his position at the, you know, West German Radio Electronic Music Studio uh, that was newly formed and, you know, eventually became the director of that. Um, you know, he did spend some time traveling the world um, a lot of time in London, he went to San Francisco, he was in New York, he was in Japan, uh, he was in Paris. So he was a world traveler for someone who, um, you know, was orphaned at a young age. Um, mm -hmm. it seems like it would have been hard, harder to get around during those times, I guess. Well, I was going to say, that was the, uh, that was close to the advent of commercial flight. Yeah, pretty, pretty early. I, it amazes me that people were ready to uh, fly commercially. I don't think I would have been... Seems like going to Mars. So, <laughs> so ready to jump in an airplane that didn't feel super... Especially... Not I have, like, still to this day... Coming off of, of a world war. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> it amazes me that people were traveling so much by plane. And it was, like, cool. It was, like, the, you know, the jet set. I guess the advertising Imagine made it cool. <laughs> flying commercially, knowing that, like the Vietnam War was, in, you know, that's happening. much later. I know, no, I'm just saying, like, you know, I, I, I'm flying during wartime would. Oh, seem just in general, yeah. Really risky to me, you know, like just considering that, you know, people didn't fly and still don't fly post 9/11. We're yeah. There's many reasons to be anxious about flying. We're not trying to put that out there to anybody who might already feel that <laughs> or way. Or to provide um, any... <laughs> but nobody's going anywhere right other now. Other reasons right? to be anxious right now yeah. at all. I'm just impressed with his 
uh, extensive travels and yeah, he got around how sure. much he was influenced by that. Oh yeah, Jerry Goldsmith, that's a good reference too. He did the uh, soundtrack to Logan's Run, which is a favorite of ours. Uh, let <laughs> yeah, me read this. Like, got a lot of influence of Stockholm's work in the closing soundtrack. Talk about influences. Though it is made without electronic of the Galaxy Electric. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were influenced. That's why I say there's so much to talk about with Stockhausen because, yes, he was working with electronic music in the electronic music studio, like he says, just because that's what was going on at the time of his ascension and his work. Um, but he was more into the ideas about composition and breaking the structures of traditional Western uh, classical music and how music was thought of, how it was produced, how it was made, how it was written, how it was, you know. He was trying to come up with, uh, he, he did, like we said, a lot of pre-composition, so he was coming up with ways to write music out, and it was more about those ideas than it really was about what the music was going to be and how it would make you feel. A lot of people say his music is not very emotional, but I think he was a pretty emotional person. Which I had noticed, that was something I had mentioned about um, Daphne Orm, for example. The, all of her compositions that are recorded sound like experiments that she thought of ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was basically just doing that sound experiment. Right, right, and right. And that right. was a recorded, that was, ended up being, you know, one like of her this, compositions. This song is really just her. And I feel like Stockhausen kind of did that from a written compositional standpoint. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he would just, the piece would be about an, a, a concept, you know, like concept pieces rather than them being about creating a lovely piece of music. Yeah, and he says own. too, like, as he went through his life, he built on those ideas. And that's why he didn't really care about the pop music that he inspired because he felt like it was repetitive and redundant. Like he wanted people to continue to push their ideas forward and each piece should be, you know, developing into another idea. You shouldn't play with the same idea again. Right. Which is kind of the opposite of pop. Which I'm not sure that I can really go that, I don't think that that's my calling in life personally. Yeah. Um, to innovate beyond, I, I just well, like making pop music to an extent. We're talking about ourselves. I think <laughs> one of the things that we talk about all the time is the fact that, you know, we like to take um, from these influences of experimental composers and you know people that are um, you know sort of forward thinking in electronic music composition and, and we like to take from those influences and ideas and then try to make pop music you know from that sort of pool of, of ideas that feels like concepts. it's not really pop music I guess like it's got enough there because we like music that has well uh, it depends on around. what era of pop music you're speaking <laughs> yeah, that's of true. you know like if you're talking about like mid 60s you know it would fit right in if you're yeah. talking about now it's like oh we're weird you yeah know, we're the weird music we're not people. of our time i guess we're trying to live <laughs> in another time i found this video and it's a series of videos that i'm sure once you watch the first one it'll lead you through the rest of the actual uh, wdr studios so you, somebody went in there in like 2008 and filmed, uh, you know, what what equipment was there. Which is right and around the time he died, right? It's, it's right after he died, yeah. Right after he died. Um, yes, maybe not in a traditional way, but it, it definitely introspective music. Yes. I found that to be true. Like, it's, it's moving. He has very, uh, he had very deep ideas about you know, consciousness and humanity and what we're all here for and that music is like the most important healing power that we have. So I don't know how you could have those ideas and be that person and not have your music reflect that that emotional power. So I think he just probably came across as very didactic and cold. And so people felt that way about his music because it wasn't fitting into any boxes and it wasn't about, oh, let's get people to dance or, you know, love songs or things like that but he was making these really moving, powerful operas that people say who saw them, that like nothing ever comes close to those experiences. Wow. Um, 
So that's all we've got on Stockhausen for today. I'm, I feel like I am just bursting with stuff I wanna talk about to you guys this week. And I can't wait to, um, you know, hear what you know, what excites you. I already got a couple interesting bits from Jose Post here. Post your so. favorite Stockhausen piece. Yeah, or what, you know, week. maybe you've never even heard of Stockhausen. Which is we don't fine. want to presume. That's why we're all in this group. It's totally, totally. This isn't just fine. for elitists who already know everything, because we certainly aren't. No, it's about being part of the journey. Like, we. There's always something new to learn anyway. Barely have scratched the surface on most of the people that we talk about. Yeah, know, I so. feel like we'll have to like circle back to a few of them. Yeah, Stockhausen's probably one of them. But what's been really fun is like as we do a, a new person, it'll remind me like something I learned about a previous person we've talked about and like how the, they may have like a parallel or maybe they worked together or something like that. So it's been really reinforcing all the stuff that we've been learning. So we're having a lot of fun. This stay Stockhausen. You know, stay Stockhausen. Stay cosmic, as we like to say. Stay Stockhausen cosmic. He was so cosmic. I'm excited to learn more about his cosmic leanings. Stay creative, and we will talk to you soon. Ta-ta. Thank you for checking out another episode of our podcast. Before you tune out, please listen to a selection of music from our Cosmic Tape Music Club members. Check the show notes for artist information. Thank you.